Why You'll Never Be a Rapper, a memoir mixtape by Josh What's-His-Name Lefkowitz, forward by Fonte Coleman. Chapter 9 yeah, 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 the For the remainder of the summer of 1996, I decided to brush off the lack of home jams or ski attention and take advantage of being at Jive. I was at a real record label that put out rap music, and this would be a fantastic opportunity for me to learn all the things that I had never known before. Writing rhymes was easy, but how did a single get promoted? Whose job was it to contact all the DJs and send them all the new records that were coming out? Who picked the artist's clothes? How did they come up with the silly little marketing tools and t-shirt designs for each album? And what went on behind the scenes? For years, I had heard artists complain. Industry room number 4080, company people are shady. I just wanted to know if it was as bad as they said. One day I was wandering through Soho and bumped into some familiar faces. It was Eli and Fanatic from Greensboro who told me that they were in town to work with Biggie and Junior Mafia. It was a pleasant interaction and they hugged me like I was a younger sibling. After we fully processed how bizarre it was to have run into each other, they invited me to the studio that night to watch them record. I felt like the universe was showing me that I was on the right path. Now the summer was getting good. I was excited to see a real studio, but my enthusiasm was somewhat deflated when I got there to find that there was no trace of Biggie, Kim, or C's. Hell, I would have been happy to see Bugsy, Nino, or anyone else wearing construction Timberlands and jeans that were three waist sizes too large. Big forgot they had a show in Miami tonight, Eli told me. I was completely let down that I wouldn't meet any noteworthy rappers, but still excited to hang out with my friends. Just then, a young babyface bloke walked out of the back wearing a gold chain with a Jesus head hanging from it, just like the ones that Biggie and Puff used to wear. Josh, this is Mace. He signed a bad boy, Eli said, as Mace stuck out his hand to shake mine. Just then, Eli whispered, he's here writing for Little C's. Writing for C's, I thought. Little C's doesn't write his own rhymes? Wow, that's pretty whack. I was so naive that I believed that all the superhero rappers I looked up to were also responsible for their rhymes. I'm Jewish, but I imagine it was similar to the feeling of finding out that Santa Claus isn't real. I'd never heard of Mace. No one had. I never heard him rhyme that night, but I could tell that he had style just based on his outfit. I was strictly a Timberland, white Nike Air Force One guy at the time, but Mace's sneakers were so dope that I had to have them. Man, if I got those and wore them back in Durham, people would lose their minds, I thought. He told me that they came from Jimmy Jazz on 125th Street, and the next morning I took the train all the way to Harlem World to get a pair before I reported to Jive. And for the actual sneakerheads listening to this right now, they were white and royal blue Nike Air Vapor Lows from 1996, a forgotten, unimportant silhouette that fueled my nascent obsession with footwear and changed my life forever. After the session was over and Mason and his sneakers were long gone, the three of us exited the studio onto a Times Square adjacent sidewalk. We told our last jokes, began to say our goodbyes, and took in the New York City vibe until we were interrupted by a security guard from the neighboring porn shop who seemed perfectly cast for the part. You know Eddie Murphy comes around here a lot, he told us. Oh yeah, Fanatic said nonchalantly. Yeah, he rides up and down the street picking up transvestite hookers. We all erupted with laughter. Come on, man, no way, I said. 
thinking of Eddie's various mockeries of homosexuals? Oh yeah, the security guard replied. I be seeing him a few times a week. He picks him up, he's gone an hour or two, and then he drops him back off. Too crazy, man, Eli said, putting his hand on the guard's shoulder. As we walked to the subway, we all chuckled at how far-fetched the story sounded. The following May, Eddie Murphy was pulled over in California with a transgender prostitute in his car. He said that he was just being a good Samaritan. Back at Jive, I'd use any and every opportunity to put myself in situations where I could learn something. Even if I were just going to an office to ask someone if they wanted lunch, I'd stand by the door eavesdropping to see what I could ingest. Just being in an office where people have board meetings to discuss Karis One's new single excited me. And the thought of having a job where you discuss rappers seemed like a fantasy, second only, of course, to actually being one of the rappers they discussed. Anytime that I'd be asked to deliver something to another floor, I felt like an undercover agent on assignment. Especially when it came to the ninth floor. That's where the A&Rs worked. A&R stands for Artisan Repertoire, and once upon a time, they were the people who searched for new talent. I knew that if they all sat in one place, then that's where I'd want to be. In real life, when an artist gets signed, the A&Rs are basically babysitters that make sure the artist gets to the studio, works with the right producers, and does all the things they need to finish and then promote the record. Unfortunately, in this day and age, most A&Rs are considered low-level and have almost no authority to sign new artists. If they do, they're too scared to do so in fear that the artist they sign won't be successful and that they will inevitably get fired. In today's ever-failing music industry and less-than-perfect economy, most record label employees are holding on for dear life and don't take many chances. They basically just tell their bosses how many Instagram followers an artist has then take a step back. But 20 years ago, it was much different. They had power and got things done. Every single day, I would try my hardest to make friends with anyone I could at the label. I spent a lot of time delivering things to the mailroom, and those guys were the coolest. It was there that I became friends with a bunch of other employees, too, who proved to be very helpful in vouching for me as an insider. As Lloyd began to realize that my country ass was pretty cool, she began to introduce me to her friends in the office, none of which seemed to fit into industry rule number 4080. First, there was Kimmy, who was the head of artist development, once an important department at a record label, but is now extinct. Kimmy's job was to groom the artist, put them with stylists so they could get the right look, get the artist's media training and skills of that nature. She would captivate me with funny or interesting tales about various artists she worked with, explain what Jive did to market them, and told me about occasions where their prima donna attitudes would come alive. Those stories were not only entertaining, but also helped me to realize that there was a method to the madness when it came to releasing and marketing an artist. It made me look at some artists on TV and think, wow, this person is completely playing up this ridiculous image, even though it seems like it's not necessarily their real personality. I began to realize that within the label, an artist wasn't necessarily celebrated for being the most talented or for keeping it real with their image. The artist was celebrated for following the plan and selling as many records as possible by any means necessary. This was all starting to make sense to me, but also left me a bit flummoxed. How was I supposed to do this on my own with no marketing department? Kimmy became like a big sister to me. She was very sweet and maternal and always made sure I was having fun and was happy. She never hesitated to get me involved with something cool or introduce me to an artist and I always loved her for that. Next was Theola, who was the head of publicity. She was super cool, but more reserved than Kimmy or Lloyd. 
I liked her because she was genuine and never acted like an industry person. She just came to work, did her job, and went home. Theola would always let me do the shit work that she knew I would secretly think was cool, like sending out promo t-shirts or silly little items to radio stations to give away in promo packs. She'd always let me take one or two of whatever I was sending, and sometimes I would even manage to send my friends shirts or artist 8x10s. After all, we were all just hip-hop fans at heart and happy to get our hands on anything. And then there was Eric Skinner, the head of rap promotions at Jive. His job was to be friends with all the DJs across the country and send them all the new singles that the label was pushing. The majority of my eavesdropping was spent by his door because he spoke loudly, which allowed me to make out all the names of the people he'd be yelling at. Eric would always tell great stories about rappers hitting other rappers with champagne bottles or getting high and beating each other up. Music and rappers were all I cared about in life, and these stories were those of legends. Whenever Lloyd ran out of stuff for me to do, she'd tell me to go see if someone else could use my help. This would often land me in Eric's office shooting the shit and boxing up 12-inch singles for DJs. I always enjoyed doing the record stuff because it gave me the opportunity to send a few copies to my DJ friends back home. They'd often get overlooked because they were in what was considered a less important market. I was sort of a hero in that situation. That did change when the music industry finally realized that, quote, the South got something to say, as Andre 3000 once put it. Eric was incredibly down-to-earth, but also liked to flash a bit. I assumed that this was a result of hanging out with rappers for years. On occasion, he'd take us to dinner on the company card and get town cars to take us home. But what I really liked best about him is that he'd always introduce us to the latest trends early. From StarTech Motorola's to two-way pagers to Izzy Miyake Cologne, Eric put me up on a lot of what was cool in the mid-90s and only added to the allure of my summer in NYC. The rapport that I developed with Eric was great and lasted. From time to time, I'd run into him at promotional functions in North Carolina, and we'd greet each other like best friends. That summer, he took the time to explain what, who, and why, just out of the kindness of his heart. What I learned from him was that the business of selling music was far more complicated and scripted than I'd ever imagined. Once Lois saw me hanging out with Eric, she began to take my rap dreams more seriously. One morning, as my cinnamon raisin bagel dripped butter and jelly down my hands, she uttered a sentence that I never thought I'd hear her say. You want me to get your demo to the A&R department? I nearly choked. Um, is that even a real question? I said. Well, I have a friend down there. She's kind of new here, but she signed Nas over at Columbia. Her name is Faith. For real? You do that? Yeah, it's no problem. Oh my God, thank you. You got a tape on you? She asked. Yeah, why? You ready to go right now? I began feeling lightheaded. I started overanalyzing my appearance at a savant-like pace. Was I wearing the right clothing? Did I shave that day? Did I look cool? Was I sure the tape worked? I was freaking out, but I had no time to. I had to get it together or she'd take me for an amateur. I needed for her to believe I was a star. Lloyd picked up the phone and dialed three numbers. Faith, hey, you gonna be in your office for a few? Okay, I'm on my way down. I want to introduce you to my intern. I don't remember the walk to the elevator to get to the ninth floor, only the walk from the elevator to her office. I honestly couldn't believe what was happening. Loy escorted me through the door to where all the A&R offices were and knocked on the first one on the left. Come in. What's up, Mama? Loy said. Hey, girl, what's up? Faith replied. Faith, this is my intern, Josh. 
He's a rapper from North Carolina. He wants to know if you'll listen to his demo. P-p-p-p-p-p- please listen to his demo, Loy said laughing and simulating a DJ scratching a record. That's funny, Loy, I said sarcastically, hoping I could cool my way out of the situation. I wish she hadn't have introduced me as her intern, or Josh for that matter, but I had to take what I could get. I mean, how could I expect her to say, Faith, this is the next big thing. What's his name from Durham, NC? No problem, babe. I'll check it out, Faith said nicely. For the next few days, I walked around with mild anxiety. I mean, she's like Nas for fuck's sake. Nas! I worried that if he were the bar, she'd never see me in the same light, especially not as Loy's intern Josh. Maybe she'd appreciate the lyricism. Maybe she'd see the vision. Hell, maybe she'd laugh. All I could do was wait. But I'm not good at waiting, so I did the only thing I could do. I grabbed random things to look like I was delivering them to the A&R floor. That way, the receptionist there would buzz me through the door without asking questions, and I could walk by Faith's door looking cool and listening to see if she was playing my tape. After a few days, I mentioned to Loy that we hadn't heard back from Faith, so she picked up the phone and made the call. Hey, did you ever listen to Josh's demo? Josh, my intern? Okay, cool, thank you. Okay, be calm. Maybe this is it, I thought to myself. So what'd she say? She said she thought it was cool. It was cool? Like, how cool? I don't know, Loy said nonchalantly as she was doodling and fiddling with her computer. Loy, what do you mean you don't know? I mean, how much does she like it? Unfazed by the urgency I was attempting to inject into the conversation and without even looking up at me, Loy simply replied, I don't know. I'm supposed to see her after work. I'll ask her then. Are you really going to ask her or are you going to forget? I'll ask her. And just like that, I was immersed in another classic music industry game of hurry up and wait. The next day, I nearly sprinted from the subway station to the office and then from the elevator to Loy's cubicle where my day always started. Drenched in sweat from the intolerable humidity, I arrived to find an empty cubicle. I waited for 20 minutes, then 30, then an hour until David, Loy's boss, came out of his office to inform me that Loy had called out sick, but that he had some things for me to do. I was pissed off that Loy wasn't there, but also because I'd be forced to deal with David who creeped me out. He was a short, awkward Jew who had close to zero social skills and never looked you in the eye. His office, which smelled like sourdough bread, usually remained closed off to the rest of the world, probably in hopes that he'd never have to actually speak to anyone. I had only spoken to him a handful of times, and each time, he acted as if he didn't like me. Not that he had any reason not to, but more so because he was a curmudgeon and probably hated everyone. I got through the less than comfortable interaction and got the work done, but couldn't help but to be annoyed at the fact that it was Friday. Now I'd have to wait until Monday to find out how the conversation went with Faith. Three days passed and Monday morning finally came. I was relieved to find Loy sitting at her desk fresh-faced and looking like she had recovered from whatever bug prevented me from finding out the fate of my Jive record deal on Friday. Hey Loy, I said. Hey, what's up? Nothing much, you feeling better? I asked. Better? Yeah, you were sick on Friday? I said. Oh, <laughs> sick, right. So you weren't sick? Nah, I was just hungover. Me and Faith went out and had drinks. I saw my opportunity. Oh, so did you talk to her? No, I ignored her all night. No, I mean, did you ask her what she thought of my tape? Yeah, remember? She said it was cool, Lloyd said. Yeah, but you said you would talk to her to find out more details. Oh, right. Okay, hold on. Lloyd immediately picked up her phone. Hey, what are you doing? <laughs> I know, right? 
Yeah, he was bugging. I know, me too. Come on, Loy, I thought to myself. Enough with the high school shit. Just as I was starting to grow impatient, Loy got back to the task at hand. So yo, Josh wanted to know what you thought of his tape. Oh, I thought, why was she presenting it wrong again? Okay, okay, got it. I'll let him know, thanks. Loy hung up the phone and said, Faith said you were good, but that you just need to work on your songs. Okay, so what does that mean? I'm not really sure. You want me to call her back? No, Loy, it's fine. But of course it wasn't fine. I was devastated. First the A&R at Sony said I was good, but didn't have any hits. Then Ski said I was good, but didn't have any hits. Now Faith said I'm good, but didn't have any hits. I had worked so hard on hits, but apparently I didn't know how to make one. I knew then that I had some serious work to do and that I'd have to alter my style. I also knew that it wouldn't be easy, but I was married to this music thing and I had to do whatever I could to make it. Okay, so I'll be 20 when I make it instead of 19. No big deal, I thought, and my determination kept me focused. I couldn't get Faith to sign me, so I had to find Faith of my own, somehow.